This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Um, so we'll pray for the youngsters in a second before they go off. But before they do, I just, I just felt um, a sense of injustice that they, they miss out on some of the, uh, the gems and the insights that uh, we have in part of our service. So just so you can join in, uh, youngsters. Before we do, has anyone made any New Year's resolutions? Hands up if you made any. There's a couple, couple, couple. Well, my, well, one of my New Year's resolutions is that I'm going to coat the complete inside of my home office with Velcro. I'm going to stick to it. Here's one for the more mature Christians in the room. Uh, For Christmas, I got the Bonnie Tyler voice downloaded into my GPS. Now it keeps telling me to turn around, and every now and again it falls apart. This is a little gem. So... The South Yorkshire police, who would have thought, have a wonderful sense of humour. So here is, a, here is a map of the South Yorkshire police headquarters. It's called the Police Operations Complex. You can go home. This is a true story. You can look it up on Google Maps. Now, what happens if Esme zooms in so we can see the name of the street where the South Yorkshire Police Operations Complex is? It's called Lesby Avenue. Come on. <laughs> Let's pray for our youngsters. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for um, our children and young people. We pray, Lord God, that as they go out into their groups this morning, that uh, they will have an encounter with you, Lord God, that, that leaves them changed. They'll understand, Lord God, how valuable they are, and what great plans you have for their lives. And we pray, Lord God, that you speak through their leaders into their hearts and souls this morning. Amen. So the story so far, we're continuing our epic journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we are well and truly into the final act. It is the week of Passover. Jesus is in the upper room. He's celebrating his last Passover meal with his closest disciples before his imminent arrest. Now, last week, Sue guided us through the institution of the Lord's Supper and the new covenant that was written in Jesus' blood that was rewriting the rules that shaped the very relationship between us and God. And the passage last week closed with Jesus revealing that he knew that one of the twelve would betray him to death. And so the disciples start to question one another. Who would do this? Who would do, who would do, who's going to betray Jesus? betray Jesus 
But very quickly, that debate turns a corner. And the disciples start to wonder, well, if Jesus is going to die, who's going to be taking over as leader of the gang? <laughs> Luke, 24, sorry, Luke 22, verse 24 says, And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? Not who would actually be the greatest, but who would win the popularity contest and be regarded? Who would be the one that people think is the greatest? In other words, they were thinking about, what does the crowd think of me? What is my public perception? So you've got to be wondering, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great? That's the title of today's message. What does it mean to be great? Who would you say is the greatest living person on the face of the earth on the 7th of January 2024? Well, to answer that question, you start to think, well, hold on. Well, how do you define greatness? You can't define the greatest, tell me who the greatest person until you start to define what does it mean to be great. So how can we define, how can we measure greatness Maybe it's how much money you've got. Well, according to Forbes, there are 2,560 humans on the world, as of last Friday, worth a billion dollars or more. The top three on that list, the three richest humans on the planet are, number one, Elon Musk. He originally, he, when he came from a rich family anyway, but he made his first fortune on PayPal as an investor, then he went on and invested in Tesla and SpaceX. The second richest person on the face of the earth? Bernard Arnault, owner of Louis Vuitton and the whole kind of luxury goods empire that goes along with that. And the third richest person on the planet? Jeff Bezos, Amazon and Blue Origin Space, another space company. So if you're wondering how to make your fortune in the world and where to invest your money, apparently in uh, cars, rockets, books and handbags. Those are the top industries to be in. But surely there's more to greatness than just gathering wealth. Maybe greatness is defined in giving your wealth away. How about the three, who are the three biggest philanthropists? Easy for you to say, morning after New Year's. Who are the three greatest philanthropists of all time? Who do you reckon they are? Well, according to my research, the greatest philanthropist of all time is Jamsetti Tata, the guy who founded the Tata um, industrial empire in India. He's reckoned to have given away over $102 billion of his family fortune, mostly into education and healthcare projects. Second biggest philanthropist of all time is... Bill Gates. He reckons he's given away about $80 billion into healthcare, fighting extreme poverty, education, and access to IT, you might imagine. The third greatest philanthropist of all time, Warren Buffett. $32 billion he's given away, again, to healthcare, education, and sanitation projects. I scrolled down the list, thinking there's a lot of Americans here. Scroll down the list. It might be interesting to know who is the greatest philanthropist in the UK of all time. They've given away $5 billion into arts, education, and human rights. It's the Sainsbury's family. The Sainsbury's family. But I'm not convinced that money, whether you're collecting it or giving away, is a particularly good measure 
of greatness. Maybe you need to think about, well, what about contribution to society rather than just keeping score with pounds? How about scientists? Who, who are the scientists that have made the greatest contribution? Okay, so how do you define a great scientist? Well, apparently there is an industry measure for this, and it's to do with saying, how often is your work cited by other scientists? And how many research papers have you published over your career? So, Walter Willett from Harvard University, he focuses on cancer research. He has been cited over half a million times by other scientists who are building on his work. Published 2,500 research papers in his own name. Maybe he's one of the greatest. Or Ronald Kessler, also from Harvard, he's into psychology. He's been cited 442,000 times by other scientists building on his work published over 1,480 scientific papers. Or maybe Robert Langer, into nanotechnology. 400,000 times other scientists have cited his work and built on it. He's published over 2,400 research papers in his own name. I'm not sure that's still a great definition of greatness. Maybe, maybe, since we're in a church, maybe we should see how does the Bible define greatness. Let's see what Jesus had to say. Let's read on. Luke 22. So a dispute arose among them as to which of them were regarded as the greatest. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So what Jesus is pointing out there, that there's levels to this thing. You might be a king, but there's still someone in authority over you. There's always a bigger fish. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table? Or the one who serves them? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves, said Jesus. So according to Jesus, the greatest person is the one who's the servantist person. An old Hebrew word there. And, and you might remember that Jesus previously said, the first will be last and the last will be first. God's kingdom is all about reversing the way we think the world works. Now Luke doesn't mention it in his gospel, but just to give us some context, when Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am here among you as the one who serves, he's reminding the disciples of the thing that happened 10 minutes previously. John chapter 13 tells the story. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now during the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God, and he was going back to God, he rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wiped them 
with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Well, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you will have no share with me. So Simon Peter said, well, Lord, they're not my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, from tip to toe. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and your teacher has washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And a few minutes later, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves, who is going to be the greatest? And read the room, boys, come on. So if you've been hanging around in church for a little while, then you've probably heard of the concept of servant leadership, or that those who serve are the ones who are highly honoured in God's kingdom. But that's not the way that the world thinks. Ladies, wave at me if you've got long, fabulous nails. Not many. Have you ever had long, fabulous nails? No? Why not? Because it's awkward, difficult, hard to live your life. Do you know where the idea of having long, fabulous nails come from? It goes back to ancient China, where rich people and rulers would grow very long nails, people of both sexes. And as a result, they could obviously do do nothing practical around the house or to look after themselves, fully relying on their servants. So having long nails was a way of giving a social cue that say, I'm so rich, someone else wipes my bottom and all the other things that go with making life happen. But if you think about it, the people that we rely on most in our society are those with the lowliest service jobs. I mean, if if the Prime Minister went on holiday for six weeks, we probably wouldn't notice, would we? (laughs) If all our bin men went on holiday for six weeks, we'd notice, right? Our junior doctors, our nurses, right? We notice those who serve. We rely on them way more. So today is the first Sunday of 2024. It's the time for New Year's resolutions, setting goals and making plans for our next season. And one of the reports on the the day of prayer and fasting, and thank you, Dave and Sue, for for organising it, and for everyone who's able to, to make it and take part. One of the things reported was to let go of things, to purify, to get our house in order, to focus on Jesus 
rather than ourselves, and that will help bring about change within us. And this reminded me of a principle I was taught years ago about goal setting. We often think that a goal is a thing that we need to do, a target we're trying to achieve. In other words, it's the destination that's important. But the point of a goal is not that goal itself. The point of a goal is the person you turn into that enables you to reach the goal. Let me say that again. The point of a goal is not the goal itself. The point of the goal is the person that you have to turn into in order to achieve the goal. In other words, setting goals is more about the journey than the destination. And that's an idea that I come back to repeatedly. It really changes the way you think about planning and setting goals in your personal life, in your work with Jesus, and in your workplace. And as I was studying and thinking about today's message... God drew a line for me between this idea about the transformative impact of goal settings and the concept of servanthood and serving God. So what does it mean to, to serve God? Well, I think, there's, I think there's levels to this thing. At one level, serving God is about family responsibility. There are certain practical things that need to happen for God's kingdom to operate. The musicians need to practice and play so we can sing along with them in church and keep a better tune. When we make a donation, a financial donation to a charity, someone takes that money to another shop, buys something practical and and delivers it to the person who actually needs it. Yeah? And then there's like another level where the things that we do are a type of, of sacrifice, an offering to God. Not because he needs it, But because when we give up our energy, when we give up our time, when we give up our money, God is pleased to accept that love offering from us. Now, I'm sure there's nothing new in in these things. You've probably heard them before in many sermons. But the thing that kind of got me excited this week is this, well, what's the third level of understanding servanthood? And I suspect it's actually the most important purpose in serving God. You see, God is not shorthanded. He has all the host of heaven at his command. He doesn't need our help. The God I believe in is not short of cash, mister. The cattle on a thousand hillsides are his. He doesn't need our money. So why then has God designed the world in such a way that, as it says in Ephesians, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? Why has the design of the world included doing good works for God that he doesn't need us to do? I think the answer is this. I think the point of serving God is not the jobs that need doing or the sacrifices that we make. The point of serving God is the person we're transformed into by those acts of service and by those sacrifices. See, as we serve God, whether it's in his church or in the mission field, whether it's in the home or in the workplace, we can only do it effectively by learning to rely more on his strength and less on our own. By learning to hear the Holy Spirit's guidance when we're doing our planning and when we're doing our doing. We can only do it by acting with more love, by being more patient by acting with more kindness, by being more good, by being more faithful, by being more gentle, by exercising more 
self-control. See, without all of these things, we won't be effective or successful in whatever we're trying to do to serve God. So, and as that fruit of the Spirit is growing within us, we are changed to become a little bit more like Jesus, which is kind of the point of everything that God is doing. So now I understand a little bit, little bit better something that God said to me well, probably about two years ago or so when I was praying about, what should I do, Lord, to serve you better? And God's answer was, who do you want to be? See, serving God is not about what we do. It's about who we become as a result of the process. The story of God and humankind is one of restoration, one of redemption. It's a journey to recover what was lost in the fall. It's a journey back towards Eden. It's a journey that sees our character transformed to become more like Jesus, to be restored to be what we were designed to be, like Adam and Eve, before they first ever sinned. So look at the end of today's passage. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 28, You are those who have stayed with me in all of my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if I was to ask you a question, what was the goal of Jesus' disciples? You might be tempted to say, well, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is what Jesus told them to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that is what they did. But what did they become? They became judges. Judges of the 12 tribes of Israel, sitting on eternal thrones in heaven. You see, the disciples served Jesus by being his evangelist and building his church. But through doing that, they were turned into the people capable of being the judges that sit on the thrones in heaven. A servant is someone who is focused on the needs of others rather than on their own needs. Which brings us back to those notes about the, the day of prayer and fasting. Focus on Jesus more than ourselves. For this will help bring about the changes in us that God desires. So as our worship band returns, as we move into this new year, if you're thinking about what might this new year bring, what are the things you might want to try and do? What are the goals you want to set for yourself? Take a moment and maybe it's time to change the question. Not what will I do for God, but who will I become for God in 2024? Will I become someone who reads their Bible more often? Will I become someone who hears the Holy Spirit more clearly because I spend more time listening for that still, small voice? Will I become someone who takes bigger steps of faith? Will I become someone who shows Jesus' love to people in practical ways when they need it? Will I become someone who leads Bible studies? Will I become someone who attends my home group regularly? Whatever the answer is for you in 2024, become someone who takes a moment to ask God the question and listen for God's answer. God is saying to us, I believe, from the words of Isaiah, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing 
a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised it is faithful. And since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance that race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and as a result is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.